Thank you for joining us today to celebrate letters, specifically letters within the archival collections at the Montana Historical Society in this, our 150th year of documenting Montana's stories. Much has been written about the demise of the handwritten word, students unable to read cursive, the emotionally stinting limits of tweets, the reduction of a beautiful and complex language to LOL. The merits of those arguments are not really our goal today, but rather the celebration of an endangered form of communication, letters and letter writing. Rather than take you through an epistolary history, if that isn't a mouthful, epistolary history, I want to share a personal story that illustrates the impact of letters. Just over a year ago, my mother passed away following a year-long battle with lung cancer. With that struggle and its effect on mom consuming my thoughts, I fought to remember good things, positive images of her life, her and her life. But I just couldn't shake the mental images of her last months. At the memorial service, my uncle handed me a box and simply said that these might help. When I returned home, I opened the box and found a series of letters dated 1940 to 1945. They had been written between my maternal grandmother and grandfather as he served in World War II. My mother was born in 1940, just before my grandfather entered the service. In fact, grandma, with newborn in tow, joined grandpa in California until he was sent overseas in 1942. Each letter was a revelation about my grandparents, whose marriage had unfortunately ended in a painful divorce, and likewise my mom, who also had challenges in her life. The chatty letters expressed love, frustration, boredom, anxiety, and joy through simple descriptions of daily life and wartime challenges. What touched me was the fact that I was able to experience a baby and toddler version of my mother, very much alive and lively, and giving my poor grandmother a run for her money. The images of her last year of life faded into the background, if only for a little while. It was such a blessing. But what was it about these letters that had such an impact, more than stories told by my family or photographs or even my own memories? First of all, they were tangible, physical ties to the people that I love. Grandma's handwriting, a faint smell of perfume, bright red lipstick kisses, mom's scribbles and sticky fingerprints. I could hold a letter and readily imagine Grandma at the table, Mom at her feet, pouring out her thoughts and dreams onto paper. But the power of letters is layered. The first layer is the tangibles, the paper, ink, handwriting, language, doodles, direct physical connections to a moment in time. The next layer is context, my knowledge of the letters, the letter writers, the historical context in which they lived, and the future lives that they led added nuance. The final layer was content, what was written, how it was phrased, why it was written. Was my grandmother thinking about history or telling her story to future generations? No. She was doing what soldiers and wives have long done, creating a paper surrogate for a married life that they could not yet have. A life sharing a home, watching their child grow, and facing the challenges of life together. She wrote to share as much as possible her daily life with someone she missed desperately. But she did so in a way that did not increase his sense of separation or cause him worry. Likewise, his letters expressed longing but did not dwell on the danger or the painful experiences that he was having. All of these layers joined together to provide a rich experience of my loved ones, and it was not, not possible in any other way for me to have that experience. Today's presentation seeks to capture similarly nuanced stories from our rich archival collections. Each member of the archive staff will share excerpts from two or three letters, sharing what is known about the letter's context and the fate of the writer. 
But doing so, and by doing so, we hope to show the breadth of our collection, share the impact of personal letters, and underscore the importance of their preservation. I have two letters to share with you today, both favorites, but for very different reasons. The first letter is a romantic juggernaut, penned by, uh, penned by a disenfranchised immigrant to the object of his heart's desire, a lovely high society miss. In true 19th century hyperbole, the besotted gentleman pours forth his heart while barely maintaining the decorum of the age. In writing his love, he has three goals. First, ensure that her heart is still his. Second, that she will in fact defy her parents and marry him despite the fact that they're not thrilled at the match. And third, that she will take on a child from his first marriage. So quite a lot uh, rides on this particular letter. Or not. Rich, do you mind? Is it on? It said. I guess I'll have to sit up there. There it is. Oh. There we go. Thank you. Yay. Which one? Okay, perfect. Metropolitan Hotel, January 2, 1855. My dear, no one can faithfully express in spoken syllables what the heart feels and the thoughts by which the mind is crowded when, as with me, both heart and mind are deeply moved. My words heretofore have fallen, shapeless, colorless, in disorder, leaves stricken by the wind and whispering to the generous breast on which they lay. Men who are strong and confident elsewhere must be reminded of the weakness which is their portion and which confesses itself in the presence of great goodness and a noble nature. Thus instructed, the vainest of us retire from the sacrament with a steadier, purer purpose. Thus instructed and thus improved do I feel myself since I have made known to you my love. I can therefore speak more freely. Heart, hand, and tongue, all are free. The story can be easily told. You know I am a rebel and an exile. You know I was married, and you know that there has been left to me a little fellow who knows not what a mother should have been. Why it is I've become a, a rebel is scarcely necessary for me to explain. The land of my birth has been for years and years a mere wreck upon the sea with a long list of sorrows. Every generation has witnessed efforts by her sons to redeem her sinking fortunes. For my efforts I was banished into the very heart of the forest, left alone with my memories, my thoughts, and the pale shadows that had once been hopes. I grew sad and sick of life. In the darkest hour of that life, a solitary star shone down upon me. I met her who has left me with this poor child for whom I have yet no home and who knows not the warmth of a mother's breast. We were wed and she shared my odious captivity. Without her, I might have hardened my heart and so have stoutly borne the lot assigned me, but that she should have to drink from a bitter cup that was given to me, I could not bear. Hence I came to the determination to break loose from the trammels which bound me to that hateful soy, soil and fly. At length she joined me, and soon we were to part again, though, and part forever. We were three years married before her death. But all this now seems a dream. I have been through the ocean in a troubled sleep, have seen through clouds a vision, beautiful and luminous, moving up from the waves to the stars, and I wake beside you to tell the dream. Sorry, got carried away. It's great language, isn't it? <laughs> and thus I've told you, not indelicately, I trust, for it was with the fond, fond feeling that not even the secrets of the grave should be kept from you. But let us close the gates over the grave to which I have led you. May flowers spring up there and make it a sacred spot forever. 
And now that I have said too much about the past, possibly, let me say a word or two about the present. In asking, as heaven knows I did with a throbbing heart, the honor of your hand, I broke the seal to my heart, and there came upon me a delicious joy like dews and sunshine, a joy which for many a day I had not known. But when I heard that you could deeply love me, there passed through me a wild delight, which made my pulse quick and my brain reel, and a thousand suns flash into the giddy air about me. My heart that had been bruised and wounded, filled with a fresh and glowing life, its cords vibrating with a hymn of love. <laughs> that there could be objections to our union, I knew. I saw them the moment I looked upon you, in the bloom and pride and glorious dawn of womanhood, stationed in the highest social rank. I was fully sensible that in claiming the honor to be your husband, I should meet no slight rebuke. For I have no fortune. I have fought my way in this world, and I will fight to the end. I am a homeless exile, dependent on my own good nature and labor for fortune. I am not yet even an American citizen. I am here alone. I have nothing to give but a true heart and a willing hand. And that heart you shall have, with the fullest measure of its love, to the last beat it gives, with all the strength and industry and pride of manhood that is in it. I have declared my intentions and purpose in becoming a citizen of America. I shall remain here and practice the bar. To win distinction in this profession shall be my ambition, so I may, to some extent, reflect honor on the noble girl who, in giving me her hand and heart uh, to one so humble and so downcast, conferred upon him a high dignity. And he goes on for several more paragraphs talking about his humble virtues. And closes, Rest assured, I shall ever prove most truthful, frank, and upright. With fondest, deepest esteem and love, I remain your, your devoted and betrothed. Thomas Francis Marr. <laughs> Over the objections of her parents, Elizabeth Townsend and Thomas Francis Marr were in fact married in 1856. The son, Thomas, described in the letter, proved to be Marr's only child, as he and Elizabeth had none. Nor did Elizabeth and Thomas raise the child. He remained in Ireland, where he was raised by his grandparents. Elizabeth was, of course, widowed on July 1st of 1867, when Marr was drowned in the Missouri River in Fort Benton, having fallen from the deck of a steamboat. The result of a slip or a shove is still a mystery. Elizabeth returned to New York in, 19, in August of 19, excuse me, 1867 and died in New York in 1906. Although his body was never discovered, a tombstone bearing Thomas Francis Marr's name sits beside that of Elizabeth Townsend in New York. Now, second letter. Now we turn from a melodramatic letter of one of Montana's most famous men to a simple but beautiful letter from a woman we know only as Jen. Willow Creek, November 15, 1891. My dear Grace, I had heard nothing of your little one's sickness and was shocked to hear of her death. Dear Grace, how I wish I could see and talk to you. I am glad that somehow you feel it's the best, but it's so hard to see it so. I am so thankful that Margaret is well, and yet I feel a dread of possibilities. She is teething and at times very fretful and troublesome. There was a couple married in Stanford the same day that we were. They had a little girl born a week later than M. The poor thing died last week, or three weeks ago, from gastric fever, cutting her stomach teeth. Ah, uh, but here comes my little crawler to help Mama smile. We are very proud of this dirty little girl who is now holding on to my knee for dear life. Here's Papa to come grab, gather her, which he has, she laughing, kicking, and squealing all the way. She is just as bright and sweet 
Dear Grace, I am happier now than I've ever been in my life. Jim is so good to me. He has proved worth waiting such a long time for. But the work is hard. From April until the last of October, lambing begins in April, and for five weeks the herder boards here. I bake for the men in camp, take care of the milk, make butter from our two cows, and raise 84 chickens. Lambing is the hardest time. I had just as many lambs around the kitchen stove this year as last, and it came up a terrible cold storm, and we lost 60 in one night. But in spite of everything, a thousand young lambs went out to summer range, over 3,200 in total, but Jim, after shearing, sold 600 withers. After lambing comes shearing, we have five shearers from California. They expect to shear the band in four days, but we had showers, just enough to wet the sheep so they could not be shorn, and they were with us eight days. They shear for eight cents a head, and they're bored, of course, which we have to pay them whether they work or not. Next comes the haying. I don't know just what the trouble was, but after a long delay, they did get to work, but then first one machine after another broke down. So that the haying was not done until October of 20, 24th. Three men's wages for a month, more than it should have been, but they put up 180 tons. She talks a little bit more about the, the finances, but closes, the baby and Jim have fallen asleep, waiting for me to finish my letter, so I guess I must say good night. With love from all here to all of you, Good night, dear friend, with much love, Jen. Although we glean a fair bit from the letter, it's difficult to determine who exactly the letter writer is. The 1900 census shows that a Jim, Jenny, and Margaret Green lived uh, near Bozeman here, um, but we can't really verify that that's the right family. The 1890 census would have been more helpful, but that, of course, was destroyed. The power of the letter, however, is not lost. In fact, the anonymity makes it more poignant as it literally could be any frontier woman struggling to give solace to a faraway friend while sharing her own worries about the fragile nature of happiness. Katie. was a common thread in the letters I've selected to share with you today. Um, it did not take such a prominent place and uh, generally did not take such a heightened sense of romance. Nor was it all, did it always have a happy outcome. My letters were written by common men and cover a broad swath of time from, 18, from the 1860s to the 1930s, each shedding some light on the writer's unique character and showing the circumstances which it, within which they found themselves. My first letter writer is Eugene Tucker. Tucker enlisted in the U.S. 13th Infantry at the end of the Civil War. He was sent west and arrived at Camp Cook in July 1866 after having spent some time at Fort Riley, Kansas. Tucker later moved to Camp Reynolds, which became Fort Shaw. Through his letters home, he described his journey through Montana and his impressions of the place and its inhabitants. Noting, for instance, in a letter written August 2nd, 1866, the queer laws out here among the minor trapper trader. They just take a man and hang him up if he steals or murders or any crime. They don't wait for a judge or jury, but up he goes. His letter to his parents, written from Fort Shaw, Montana Territory, on August 8th, 1867, is particularly notable. In this letter, in addition to the usual updates on his health and inquiries about family members in Wisconsin, he recounts what he claims was the suicide of Thomas Francis Marr. In opening, he writes, 
Your kind and welcome letter of the 14th of July came to hand last night, being but 24 days on the trip, which is pretty good time. You will see by the heading of this that we are in a different place, but we ain't. Only a different name for the same place. That is, Fort Shaw for Camp Reynolds. You may direct to Fort Shaw, Montana Territory after this. To try and answer your letter, I will do my best, but I will make very thin, as I have nothing of importance to write. But on the 1st of July, when down to Benton, Governor Marr committed suicide by jumping into the river. You have no doubt seen in the papers that he accidentally fell overboard, but as I was not more than 50 feet from him at the time, I know better, for he had a fib delirious trembles. It's hard to know how much truth there is in Tucker's assertion especially his conclusion about Mars' uh, death being a suicide. Tucker does not give any more details that could be used to verify his account against any of the others, or mention taking part in the search for Mars or his body that began shortly after he fell overboard. He may be giving a genuine, though subjective and disinterested, first-hand account of Mars' death, or he may have taken some liberties in describing his proximity to the event. In either case, Tucker appears to be genuine in his view of the importance of the event because he goes on to discuss what he believes to be his brother's impending nuptials with much more interest. The rest of the letter reads, Father, I and Frank and the French boy are all well at present, and we expect to go off on an expedition. We may turn up somewhere about Christmas, but we don't know where exactly. There's about 50 of us going. Our company is going up to the Gallatin Valley, but we are not. We're going in another direction. I suppose before this gets to you that John will be in his coffin, but I guess it won't hurt him much. I would like to be there to, about that time to see him get spliced, for I've seen but one of my brothers made too. How's Lorraine getting along? And how are all of my nephews and nieces? And by the way, when John and his wife become three, just write and let me know if I am an aunt or an uncle. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to have a fist in the naming. Him, she, or it. Now, I do not know what more to write, so I guess I will quit. Give my respect to Four-Eyed Thompson and family and all the rest of the folks. So now, now goodbye. Hoping this finds you all enjoying good health, I remain yours, Eugene. Um, it appears that, in fact, his brother uh, did get spliced, and as G Eugene went home, uh, Later in that year, uh, worked his way back across the country to civilization uh, to rejoin his family. Um, he could look forward to meeting his new sister-in-law. So my next set of letters um, I want to introduce to you were written by uh, Anastasius Capitanos. Capitanos was a Greek immigrant who worked as a waiter in Billings, Montana. Uh, in December 1931, he wrote two letters, one to his father and one to his brother, in which he discussed both his and their economic hardships, family issues, and even his marriage prospects. Commenting on the financial hardships he faced in Billings, Capitanos wrote, things here are not great. As I'm writing to you, I'm out of work for a week. The boss laid us off so that others could work and make a living. There's an or this is an order of the mayor of the city. Later in the same letter, he writes, we have fallen into, into some very bad times. The hotel owners are not making anything. They work for nothing. Those who do work have difficulty in collecting their paychecks. Imagine how things have deteriorated. 
and where we might be heading yet. After searching the Billings newspapers uh, for this time period and contacting the uh, Billings City Clerk to search the minutes, resolutions, and ordinances of the Billings City Council, um, I found no record of anything resembling the order from the mayor that Capitanus refers to here. It's unclear whether uh, he was misleading his brother to avoid sending him more money. He enclosed uh, $40 with this letter. Um, whether he uh, had been, whether he was misinformed or had maybe been deliberately misled himself. Though the bulk of his le Capitanus' letters uh, focused on the financial situations of himself and his family, he did touch on other subjects as well, and hints even at family tensions. His December 14th letter to his father shows how the three mixed. I have written so that I may learn how you are handling things this, during this economic crisis. Since I did not send you any money right away, the letter writing stopped. Lettuce writes often and hollers about the economy, spending, and the money. I do not understand why you have not written. I have sent you pictures, one big and five small ones. Could it be that you didn't like them? I have sent them to show you how the years have passed and how time has changed us here in America. If you happen to be mad, and that is why you are not writing, it doesn't matter. There are some here who are making me proposals of marriage in order to bring their daughters here. Just imagine, an old man like me. I am patient and waiting for a Cretania, which is a woman from Crete. Maybe next Christmas will bring the Cretania. It looks like Capitanos never did find his Cretania. The 1940 census found him living in a Veterans Administration a facility in Ohio, where he's listed as single. So um, the last letter I have to share with you today was written by Jake Hoover. Hoover was an early Montana trapper and prospector and friend to Charlie Russell, who settled in for a while in Judith Basin. On January 4th, 1884, after having his invitation to a local dance declined by a Miss Carrie Gray of Helena, he wrote a, a letter expressing his displeasure. The letter reads as follows. Now Carrie, I don't think you treated me right by not going with me to the dance Thursday night. Of course I don't blame you, Miss Carrie Gray, for I have to put up with what you have to say. I can't expect you to go with a scrub, especially a man that hunts for his grub. I guess I will sell both my butt, my gun, and my traps, and go and invest in a big pair of shaps. To tell the truth, I can't help but feel that I haven't had what I call a square deal. And to tell you the truth, I can't help but be afraid that I am completely laid in the shade. When I stayed all night there, it was plain to see that th you thought very little of me. How I felt when you jilted me, I will say to be frank, it was the bitterest cup that ever I drank. Now that, not that I flattered myself that on me you was stuck. Before I asked, I knew I was clean out of luck. Your opinion of me, I hope, will be better someday. Or at least, I hope it will help carry gray. If I had in my pockets plenty of money to rattle, or had on the range a big band of cattle, I might expect then to be treated far better, and I might suit someone then just to the letter. And I guess also my character is bad, so to tell the truth, at you I'm not mad. And now when this epistle you have read, do not get offended at what I have said, but into the fire give it a send, for if you do, you'll get mad at a friend.
By these few lines, you are certain to know it, that the man that wrote them was a very poor poet. <laughs> he had a good sense of humor about it, apparently. There's no indication of whether Gray came to think better of Hoover. Um, Hoover eventually left Montana for Alaska in the late 1890s, in part, is, it is believed, to escape his tumultuous marriage to another woman. <laughs> Hunting and the hunter are part of the fabric of Montana's history, and letters I have chosen to share with you today illuminate the life of the professional hunter and the hardships, hardships faced by these men. My first letter comes from a young man named Robert L. Hammond. A native of Pennsylvania, he traveled west to find his fortune and found himself hunting for a living in eastern Montana. This is one of four letters in the collection written to his, written to his brother-in-law, Monroe Wheaton, and his sister, Loduski. He writes about the abundance of game and the prices for the pelts of buffalo and wolves and for deer and antelope meat. He also writes about the troubled interactions with the Native Americans in the area. Here are a few passages from his letter from Crow Agency, dated February 4th, 1877. We have been here for two weeks, and we are going down the Yellowstone River to hunt buffalo and wolves. We can get $3 apiece for buffalo hides, and $2.75 for wolf, and 15 cents per pound for deer and antelope. I think that we can make a few hundred dollars at it before spring opens. Well, Monroe, the darned redskins have sent me a fool once this winter. They got away with my racehorse and two ponies and left me a fool on the prairie 100 miles from any place. Darn them, I will get even with them or lose my hair in the attempt. Later in the letter, I have been hunting and prospecting for the last six months. Have not been in any white settlements for a long time until we got here. We lived on meat straight for several days before we reached this place. We have been resting ourselves in stock before starting on our hunt for buffalo and Indians, for we are liable to find them both near together. And if, if we find any of them, we will give them a rattle. We both have good guns. They are both Sharps 44 sporting rifles, and they are hard to beat. Well, as it is getting late, I will have to close for this time. Goodbye, my love, and best wishes to you all. With love as you get this, forever yours, Brother Bert. The other letters in the collection help paint a picture of what life was most possibly like for many young men coming west to seek their fortunes, longing for home and the comforts of, comforts of family left behind while still thriving on the adventure and opportunity of the, new, of the frontier. We know from the letters that Robert went on to own part of a ranch and operate a stagecoach operation near Froze to Death Creek outside of Miles City, selling that interest. He went on to work for the federal government operating a sawmill all between the first letter in 1877 to his final letter in May 1878. The longing to be with his family was strong throughout these letters, but he also expressed interest in traveling to Africa to possibly seek his fortune there, a reflection of the adventurous spirit which had to have brought him to Montana in the first place. Sadly, he died at the age of 31 in 1879 when he drowned in the Yellowstone River at Buffalo Rapids about seven miles downstream from Miles City. My next letter gives insight into the life of a professional hunter from Montana about 30 years after the experience of Robert Hammond. This letter is from Edward Sartain's correspondence with a young woman in Washington. 
We see a glimpse of his life as a professional coyote and wolf hunter, a business he partnered in with his brother. Sartain raised and ran dogs as part of his hunting operation. The dogs were taken out as a pack and were trained to take down a lone coyote or wolf. His time as a professional hunter took, into, took him into Canada to make a living, and that is where this letter was written. The letter highlights the dangers faced by man and canine alike, as well as the emotional bond between a man and his dogs. Here are some passages from his letter written from Medicine Hat, Alberta, dated February 16, 1907. My brother and I were out on the prairie in a blizzard and had to stay out all night. We were crossing the country hunting for coyotes, and one morning we left a ranch about 8 o'clock in the morning. We had 25 miles to go to get to the closest ranch and fully expected to be there by 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Well, we had not gone more than 6 or 8 when we had to walk and lead our horses on account of the deep snow. It was at least 2 feet deep on the level. When dark came, we were still about six miles from Milk River and awfully tired and hungry, and the wind was blowing something terrible. We did not know for sure if we were going right or not, for we could not see more than a few yards in front of us. Well, we got to Milk River about nine o'clock that night, but as it had been such a bad day, all the tracks leading down to the ranch was covered up, and there's just one place that a man can safely get down, and we could not find it. We knew then that we had to stay out all night, so we turned our horses loose to wrestle for themselves. We stood it until about 3 o'clock in the morning when we saw we could not keep from freezing to death. Three of our dogs had already froze to death right by our side. Oh, you can never know how bad I felt to see little Speed die. I held her in my arms and cried like a baby. I just couldn't help it. She had always been so true and brave in her hunting. I never knew her to falter, even for an instant. She always did her best. Well, we took our saddle ropes and tied one onto a sagebrush and went down to the next ledge of rock. We left it hanging there, and I took one end of the rope and Johnny the other end, and we managed to get down to the last ledge, where I slipped and fell down to the bed of the Milk River. Johnny was a hold of the other end of the rope, and he came very near going over, too. I was unconscious for a few minutes, but I didn't mind after I came to. We all got into, well, we got into Spencer's the next morning at about 9 o'clock, and it was 58 degrees below zero. They said it was 60 below at 7 o'clock. We both had our feet pretty badly frozen. I have been in the hospital most of my time since, but I'm, but I'm getting along fine now. I think I will get along without losing any of my toes, but the doctor is not, so, is not sure. I was never so tired of laying around in my life. This is lots worse than crossing the country in a blizzard. About daylight the next morning, King froze to death. That made four that froze to death that night. King, Major, Jip, and Little Speed. In further records, including Sartain's World War I draft registration card, we see that he did, in fact, lose part of several of his toes from this experience. Sartain was quite the prolific man during his short life. He was born in Kansas City, Kansas in 1881 and found his way to Montana with his wife and three children sometime between 1900, which that census puts him in Illinois, and 1910, where they are listed in the census as living in Haver. In the 1910 census, his profession was listed as, horse, as a horse trader, 
one of the many professions he seemed to have throughout his life. Sartain died at the age of 39 in 1920, and is buried in Great Falls. Okay, I'm going to go back to the Great Depression, uh, to the early 1930s. Uh, first, let me tell you a little bit about Elling B. Anderson, or Elling Bang Anderson, as I learned his middle name is Bang. Um, he was born in Norway in 1870, and by 1896 had immigrated to the United States, and very soon after that had settled on the plains in an agricultural area of South Dakota. By 1913, in 1913, he uh, married uh, his wife, Elena, or uh, Lena, I, think, I believe it is, and uh, they continued to farm in South Dakota. Uh, 1928, he and his family, Alina and their six children at the time, uh, relocated to eastern Montana near Circle, uh, kind of latecomers to the uh, homesteading that went on in eastern Montana at that time. Uh, two more children were born very soon, but farming was not going well. And by August of 1931, Elling was compelled to write a letter to Montana's governor, John Erickson, asking for help. This is what he writes. Circle, Montana, August 24, 1931. Mr. Governor Erickson, dear sir, I think it is my duty to write to you. I'm not a very old settler. I have only been here three years. I came from South Dakota, and there I have been 32 years. The NP, Northern Pacific Railroad, uh, came and advertised the land and told how good it was. And here I've been for three years and have not made a living. Now the Red Cross is helping the people, but I think they cannot do it all. So I think you start us out in roadworking, like the governor of Wisconsin and South Dakota is doing. I have a big family of eight children, and us are ten. And getting two dollars a month from the Red Cross is too little for us to live on. And besides clothing, I think the state and the government has to take hold of this before it is too late. It looks to me that most of the people are excited, so I don't know what will happen. Please try to do the best you can. Yours truly, Elling B. Anderson. We have the governor's response uh, a few days later. And you notice the, uh, he's probably um, dictating this to a, a secretary, and she heard him say L.M.B. Anderson, so the name is Mr. L.M.B. Anderson instead of Elling B. Anderson. Uh, Circle, Montana. Dear Sir, I am in receipt of your letter and have noted its contents. Drought conditions in your county are well known, and every effort will be made to see that there is no suffering from either lack of feed or fuel. I would suggest that you keep in touch with the Red Cross organization in your county and be sure to report the names of all families who are in need of food and clothing. You talk about road work, but it takes money to build roads, and we have no money available for private road work. We have given this a good deal of attention and have had the matter up with the federal government with a view to getting some money to put in on the roads for the benefit of the people, but so far have been unable to do so. However, every effort will be made to care for the people. Yours very truly, Governor. And uh, thanks to uh, the census records and... Uh, this obituary from 1950, we learn a little bit about what happened to the Anderson family. Uh, they, the 1940 census shows them uh, living in 1935 in Valley County, so perhaps they were moving uh, nearby, uh, 
your circle um, trying to find work, perhaps in Fort Peck or something like that. Um, but then, actually, by 1936, they appear to have moved to western Montana, given up on uh, the, the treeless plains and headed to the forests of uh, the western shores of uh, Flathead Lake. Uh, they end up living in Lakeside the rest of uh, Elling's life. Um, he died in October 1950, and his, his sons and children, um, I think about probably half of them, probably still live around the area, Kalispell. He's buried in Kalispell. Uh, right there is his grave, thanks to Find a Grave. So amazing the things you can find, uh, just from one letter in the governor's papers. But move on to the next one. Uh, we're going to go to uh, overseas for this, uh, sticking with the middle of the 20th century. Uh, this letter from the Korean War era is written by John W. MacDonald. John was born in 1928 in the Philippines, where his parents were missionaries. He and his family experienced war early in life when the Japanese invaded their island home in December 1941, beginning American involvement in World War II. He and his family suffered internment during the war. After the war, John graduated from Missoula County High School. They came back to Montana. Um, he graduated from Missoula County High School, attended the University of Montana, and then enlisted in the U.S. Air Force for pilot training. He flew propaganda and transport missions during the Korean War. His letters from Korea revealed that he saw his service in the war not as a duty, per se, but more as a good job that paid a, a decent salary for a young man. More than anything, it allowed him to fly airplanes something he obviously loved. Here's one of his letters written to his brother, Bob McDonald, on May 29, 1952. Dear Bob, if my writing is loused up on this letter, it's because the plane is bouncing all over the sky. There's a hellacious wind blowing, and it makes all sorts of turbulence over the mountains here. It would be a lot smoother up at nine or 10,000, but I'd have a lot stronger headwind up there too. So I'll stay low till I come to the central range of mountains then climb on top, climb on top of the clouds and, and turbulence. I'm on my second trip to Seoul from Pusan today, and will come back again to Pusan before I'm through today. Your letter and picture, damn, but it's rough as a cob, uh, got to me this morning. That's a pretty good picture. George looks like he's getting fat. He'll, he'll have a double chin pretty soon if he doesn't watch out. From his infrequent letters, I gather that he's fairly happy. To hell with these bumps. I'm going up on top. Back later. I'm now at 8,500 feet, and it's still rough, but not too bad, so I'll probably stay here. So you're getting out in October. What then? Just caught an updraft up to 10,500. Smooth here, so, so we'll stay. You've never mentioned what you plan to do after you get discharged. I don't imagine you feel like teaching anymore. You didn't, you didn't seem to like it much. Photography? Writing? Or can't you decide like me? Are you going back to Missoula to live? You mentioned going home in October. Any plans for marriage? If I'm getting no nosy, just say so. I'd like to get married, but I don't know to who. I'm afraid I'll be easy pickings for some gal. Oh well, such is life. Going to quit now and write a note to George. See you this fall, John. And he has a PS. Uh, have I told you about meeting mom and dad in Kobe? and going overland with them to Yokohama. Swell trip, we had a good time, Jay. Uh, John McDonald stayed in the Air Force into the 1960s and served in Japan during the Vietnam War. 
He retired from the Air Force with 20 years service. He taught at Sentinel High School in Missoula and then retired to Stevensville. And uh, just a, it, one of those interesting letters um, written while flying an airplane, something you don't <laughs> find too often. The telephone, the internet, airmail. These are all inventions that only the past few generations have been able to enjoy. Prior to these creations, our ancestors had to sit with wait, bated breath for weeks or longer for a response to their posts. For some, the wait was just unbearable. Originally from New York, by the late 19th century, Adelbert Aurelius Lathrop was working as a lawyer in Helena. After a few years of practicing law, he transitioned into journalism, writing for Helena newspapers and other periodicals. Alongside his pen and paper, Adelbert also incorporated pickaxe pick and shovel into his work, running a number of mining claims in the Helena area between the early 1900s and 1915, at which time hard luck befell the man, forcing him to relocate to the Pacific coast, or as he once described it, one swaggering scream of boastful self-praise and faded boom. Whether these late 1915 letters to Charles Kessler of Kessler Brewing reflect Adelbert's sincere opposition to prohibition, <coughs> or simply an attempt to secure funding for his return to Helena is unknown. Seattle, Washington, November 4th, 1915. Friend Charlie. Along in September, I sent the Helena Record a newsletter, which was duly published. In my letter to Editor Greenfield in closing the newsletter, I told him that I was preparing a letter on prohibition in Washington, which I thought he would find worth running as a communication, in case his paper was not yet ready to take up the coming issue of prohibition in Montana. As he published my newsletter, I assumed my prohibition letter would be welcomed, and I sent it on. Awaiting two weeks its publication, I wrote asking him to return my copy in case he found it not available. He returned it, of course, and I herewith enclose his letter giving his reason for not publishing. Now, I fully appreciate the record's position. It is the same, it is the same as that of all the chief politicians. They would like to steer clear of the fight. I am sending you Mr. Greenfield's letter with the solemn request that you will show it to no one, with the exception of your brother Fred, should you so desire. Tom Power once wrote me a letter, which I lost, and if I saw the dog, I would have given a hundred dollars could I have flashed it under his nose, as this letter may serve me a turn when I return to Montana. Of course, a Helena paper would be preferable, as my, as my using your business as an illustration brings home to, bring home to your fellow citizens the base iniquity of the confiscatory features of the prohibition scheme. Had the record published these letters, I would not have written to you, but now I am a little mad and don't want to see my work, which has cost much time, as well as some little expense in my typewriting, as I have no available typewriter, go to plumb waste. I can amplify these letters and put the matters in the form of a modest pamphlet to be circulated at discretion. I quote only a small portion of Dr. Vetter's book rebutting the claim that Christ used unfermented wine at his wedding feast. And the report of Dr. Elliot's cure is a book of 200 pages re reviewing the entire history of the failure of all prohibition legislation and contains a fund of facts. A little personal history. A year ago in September, just as my mining enterprise, to which we had devoted four years of hard labor, was reaching success, my health collapsed utterly. I spent two months in St. John's Hospital, and owing to my illness, was forced to sell on inadequate terms and at long, and at long time payments. My improvements have been very slow, but I am now in good condition to do desk work. Though my legs are still wobbly, I hope to get back to Montana by March, 
either to uncover a body of ritual, of which I have certain knowledge, or to engage in a new newspaper enterprise planned for Helena, a paper absolutely nonpartisan and uncontrolled by any clique, clan, or gang. In Oregon, and here, I have steadily pursued the study of prohibition questions and have accumulated a stock of information, facts, on the question to a degree not possessed by any editor, lawyer, clergyman, or soapbox orator in Montana. If you can now make use of my information and facility as a writer in matter preparatory to the coming contest, I will render good services, and lots of it, at a nominal honorarium, as I see no way of employing my time until we receive our next payment, which will enable us to return to Montana. A man of my experience can be most usefully used here. For now on, in keeping from now on, in keeping track of the information, the anti-prohibition interests of Montana, of the steps taken in pending litigation, and the collection and preservation of data for use in the Montana contest. My father performed the marriage ceremony at the wedding of Mike Rennick, and it was celebrated at your home, and your father always spoke of my father in the highest terms, and as being a clergyman who was who considered a brewer as good a man as any other, and your father always treated me in the most kindly manner, facts which have given me a warm sentiment for your well-being. But I am not an applicant for charity, but I am confident I have some goods that will prove of profit to you, and which my present leisure and the state of my finances move me to offer for sale at bargain counter rates. Do you get me, and will you reciprocate? Do not try to pass on all this in your office. Take it to your home and give it consideration all the time that is due. Don't fail to return my Grainfield letter, and also, please return my copy if you, are, uh, if you find you are unable to make use of it. And be assured, I am most truly yours, A.A. Lathrop. After waiting more than three weeks for a response, and just days away from moving to Medford, Oregon, on November, on November 30th, Edelbert wrote Charles a quick note reminding him of his lack of response. The following is Charles' response to these two letters. December 15th, 1915. My dear, my dear Bert, upon arriving home from a trip East very recently, I found your entertaining and instructive letters with two enclosures, and had scarcely waited for a good quiet hour or so to carefully go through them when your second letter came to hand. I hastened, therefore, to answer same to you as requested, though very sorry that you would not permit me to show same to any other person, for the items are most interesting, and I thank you most sincerely for the privilege of being allowed to read and answer. You may be interested in learning that we are getting in shape here, organization, etc., Later on, if agreeable to you, she'll drop you a line or two and beg to remain. Meanwhile, with kind regards and best wishes, yours is truly C. Kessler. Adelbert did not seem to appreciate this response and wasted no time in letting Charles know. December 12, 1915. Beg your pardon, my dear Charles. I cannot think it possible that I wrote you not to show my press letter. What I am confident I did write was that I did not want you to show Mr. Greenfield's letter, and it is obvious that this would not be prudent for me to show that at random. I received yours of the 5th with my press letter yesterday, and would feel decidedly sordid and not think it possible that my letter warrants the interpretations you gave it. Had you acknowledged your receipt of my letter upon your return to Helena, promising to give it due consideration at your leisure, I certainly would not have asked you to return my message. I waited on Greenfield three weeks after I sent him my first letter, before I wrote him to return it, if he did not intend to read it. And then, waiting three weeks to hear from you, I was justified in believing that my friendly efforts were not appreciated. You will need the aid of everyone you can command. And should it seem to you to be your interest to turn down a volunteer, I am quite certain you will find you are rowing against a damn stiff tide. Mind you, did not say that you are doing this. I spent much time in collecting the facts quoted in my letters, together with some expense. 
My first letter to Greenfield was highly complimentary to your house, and it was sent with no other motive than sincere friendship. Then, when Greenfield turned me down, I deemed it my due that you should know my disposition. So I sent you the two letters, intending you should use them if you deemed them helpful. I will, now, I will not now send these letters to a Montana paper as I intended, as they must be revised because of the decisions of the Washington Supreme Court and other recent, recent events. And then, I have a right to know whether the doctrine of reciprocity is to prevail in the coming campaign. I have experienced prohibition in Iowa, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Missouri. Carefully studied it during the past year in Washington or, and Oregon. The points made in my letters are unique and sound. The refutations I make of the alleged sin of drinking so frequently made from the pulpit and by the WCTU is absolutely unassailable. Senator T.J. Walsh, Walsh once wrote that Lathrop possesses a fund of practical knowledge and facility to apply the same, rarely equaled by any man of my acquaintance. I never was a grafter nor a seeker of compliments, but I now propose to begin to conserve what I possess. I, I enclose opinion of the Washington Supreme Court. It has no bearing on, on your campaign except as to its endorsement of the Webb-Kenyon law, the construction of which will ultimately be made by the U.S. Supreme Court. Still, with the kind of sentiments towards you, sincerely, A.A. A. Lathrop. Less than one year later, Montanans voted in November 1916 to enact laws prohibiting the production and sale of alcoholic beverages. It does not, appear, does not appear Charles Kessler ever attempted to respond to this final correspondence from Mr. Lathrop, let alone employ him of his rhetorical services. Nor does it ever appear Mr. Lathrop returned to the land he loved so dear. Records list him as a resident of Medford, Oregon up until his death in 1927, six years before the U.S. Congress repealed the 18th Amendment. Charles Kessler invested in a number of businesses during the Prohibition year and was able to reopen the brewery following its repeal in 1933. The brewery remained open until one year after his death in 1958. Still, we'll never know what the outcome of the Prohibition fight could have been if Kessler had allowed Lathrop to fight stiff tide for him. One of the more entertaining things that we get to do at the Montana Historical Society is answer reference requests. And I do believe I've found to date, the earliest reference request ever received by the Montana Historical Society, and I dare anybody to challenge me on that. <laughs> um, the letter arrived from Buffalo, New York, September 15, 1870, and it was mailed to Hezekiah Hosmer, who was the Chief Justice of the Montana Territorial Supreme Court. He was also a charter member of the Montana Historical Society, as well as a former president of the Historical Society. So it's uncertain if the author just knew that or if it was just by chance. The letter reads, four or five years ago, a righteous vigilance committee in your city hanged a casual acquaintance of mine named Slade, along with 12 other prominent citizens whom I only knew by reputation. Slade was a section agent at Rocky Ridge Station in the Rocky Mountains when I crossed the plains on the Overland stage 10 years ago, and I took breakfast with him and survived. Now I'm writing a book. And as the Overland Journey has made six chapters of it thus far, and promises to make six or eight more, I thought I would just rescue my late friend Slade from oblivion and set a sympathetic public to weeping for him. Such a humanized fragment of the original devil could not and did not go out of this world without considerable newspaper odat. 
in the shape of biographical notices, particulars of his execution, and the object of this letter is to beg of you to ask someone connected with your city papers to send me a Virginia City newspaper of that day if it can be done without mutilating a file. I beg your pardon for writing you so freely and putting you to trouble without having the warrant of an introduction to you, but I did not know anyone in Virginia City, and so I venture to ask this favor at your hands, hoping you will be able to help me as I am, you, sir, your obedient servant, Mark Twain. Now, it's unclear whether or not Hosmer actually responded to uh, Mr. Twain in the prescribed 15 to 20 business days, but it does appear that Twain may have obtained some of his biographical information regarding um, Slade and his fate from Thomas Dinsdale's uh, The Vigilantes of Montana. Uh, when Twain's book, Roughing It, was published in 1872, he wrote the following about his encounter with Slade at Rocky Ridge Station. Here, right by my side, was the actual ogre. He was so friendly and so gentle-spoken that I warmed to him in spite of his awful history. The coffee ran out. Slade was about to take it when he, he saw that my cup was empty. He politely offered to fill it. But although I wanted it, I politely declined. I was afraid he had not killed anybody that morning and might be needing diversion. <laughs> but still, with firm politeness, he insisted on filling my cup. I thanked him and drank it, but it gave me no comfort, for I could not feel sure that he would not be sorry presently that he had given it away and proceed to kill me to distract his thoughts from the loss. <laughs> but nothing of the kind occurred. As for Jack Slade, he had a reputation as a bad man in the West, not necessarily an outlaw, but definitely not someone you wanted to irritate or maybe go on a toot with at the local watering holes in Alder Gulch. In fact, it was his propensity to go on toots that proved his downfall. And on March 10, 1864, after threatening Judge Alexander Davis uh, twice, the Vigilance Committee's patients had worked in with him, and they passed a sentence of death on him. Captain James William, with the assistance of others, marched Slade to the corral behind Fouts and Russell's store in Virginia City, where Slade was summarily introduced to the business end of a short rope and a long drop, thus ending the career of Mark Twain's breakfast companion. And it's interesting how letters come together and how you, uh, you start out selecting letters based on what you think is interesting, and you don't necessarily see the connections at first, and then all of a sudden they're they're all there. It is really kind of one small neighborhood, and you can figure out a lot about Montana history and Montana's early pioneers. Continuing along with Captain James Williams, he was born in Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania on January 21, 1836. He went to Bleeding, Kansas, where, he's an active, where he was an active participant in the Troubles there from 1856 to 1859 when he moved to Colorado. It appears that he was a natural-born leader, and in fact, when he came to Montana Territory in the early 1860s, he traveled on the same wagon train as Slade, and they both stood for the position of captain of the wagon train. Slade made it known that he wasn't going to take orders from anybody, that regardless of what the election results were, he was going to be the captain, and he was going to give the orders. Captain Williams took Slade aside and informed him that whoever was elected captain would be captain. Slade served humbly as Williams' lieutenant the rest of the way to Montana. <laughs> uh, the letter that I'm going to read to you is one that uh, Williams wrote to his business partner and friend, Edmund Calloway, on January 31st, 1886, from the Jessamine Ranch in the Ruby River Valley. Dear Sir, 
sold the three sold the steers three years old and over to the butcher to the butte butcher for $140 a head all that we can find in a limited time Donegan Newberry and snap also sold don't think we'll find them all as they are badly scattered no snow on range have nearly all the feed on hand yet joined the good Templars last night will never drink another drop of whiskey as long as I live <laughs> unless I get snake bit I will not look for snakes either <laughs> yours cap as entertaining as the letter is the fate of Captain Williams is is uh, is uh, rather grim he committed suicide in late February 1887 by consuming a bottle of laudanum his remains were found on the ranch under some willows with no note, the assumption was made that he committed this rash act because of, his de because of the desperate situation of the cattle industry as a result of the winter of 1886-87. John M. Williams, his brother, wrote the following description of his brother to Llewellyn L. Calloway, author of Montana's Righteous Hangman, uh, about his brother James. The man who was leader of the vigilantes of Montana, this was a true leader of men. He excelled as an organizer, and his control of turbulent men was perfect. He was, a he was a correct example of the more efficient pioneers of Montana. Owing to the careful planning of this man against coming events, in coming events, the Montana Vigilance Committee was irresistible. Absolutely fearless, he was at no time arrogant. He was a kindly father and an honorable gentleman, and his name was plain James Williams. Cap Williams left behind his, his wife Elizabeth and seven children ranging from the ages of 20 to 8. Plain James Williams had a son, James M. Williams, uh, not junior, and uh, he was the oldest child. Like many young men at this time, he worked a variety of jobs um, to, uh, to earn a living. And at the age of 26, he found his Juliet. In the, in the form of Francis Battle. In the four letters that we have in the collection, he proclaims his love and devotion to dear Francis and plots to live happily ever after with her despite any objections her folks might have concerning his character. The first letter, Ms. Francis Battle, dear friend, as I'm going away for a few days, I will write you a few lines to let you know I am getting well and hope this will find you enjoying good health. I was uneasy about you I was afraid some accident would happen. Sunday night as you went home, it was so very dark, but it was impo impossible for me to come up as I felt quite sick Monday. I am almost well now. I am going up to the mines today and will be gone until Saturday. I'm not going to work. I'm just going along to show Mr. Woodruff and Pay the country and to locate some good ground in Idaho Gulch. My Uncle John has come down from the gulch and he wants me to stay at his ranch till I get well and he will go back up to the gulch. I don't know when I'll be up as I fear my coming up causes you trouble. But if you still leave a, if you will leave a note at the Home Park Post Office telling me when you will be at Fred's anytime after Saturday, I will come and see you as I must have a long talk with you. I have lots of news to tell you. I believe that some of your folks object to your keeping company with me. But dear Francis, if you feel as I do, nothing in the world can ever make any difference in our feelings. If anything should happen to part us, the sun would never shine for me anymore. You must excuse my bad writing, as I'm rather nervous today. I must close, as you will be tired of reading this scribbling before now. With regards to all and love to you, I remain truly, James M. Williams. Two years later, 
he's past the point of waiting patiently. And he hatches a plan. And the letter is about his plan. How would it do for you to come up with Mrs. Snap Tuesday as she goes to town and let the folks understand you're going to town with her? I could have a team in spring wagon ready and you and I could go to Dillon and be married that day and could be home the next day. Now, dear girl, do as you think best and it'll be all right with me. P.S. I leave a bit of paper and pencil with this and if you may get a chance to write a few lines in answer to this, do keep the letter with you where you can get at it and I will ride close up beside you as you are going home. You can drop the note on the ground. I'll stop to fix my saddle and we'll get it. <laughs> Your own Jim. Four days later, on May 29, 1895, Jim and Francis were married. They moved to Blaine, Idaho in 1900, and in the 1920 census, uh, places him in Camas County, Idaho, where he and Francis are living with four children, a son-in-law, and two grandchildren. This is where having a name like Adelbert Aurelius Lathrop would really come in handy for census records because that's the last firm ID that, uh, that we have on Williams and his, uh, his Juliet. But we're hoping that they lived happily ever after to the end of their days. Thank you, everyone. Our presentation has run the gamut of emotions, topics, and temperaments, and yet has only skimmed the surface of what you will find in our collections. As I noted when we began, the power of letters is revealed in layers. They require the reader to interpret the physical characteristics, the meaning of content, and the historical context. With each letter presented today, we experienced unique voices and intent, some writing to persuade, some to rebuke, some to simply inform but all stemmed from a, a unifying need, the need for human beings to connect through time and distance, to make their present known, presence known and felt. For that reason, letters of all types, times, content, and purpose can be significant, not just the mostly uh, beautifully written or those written by powerful people or even those expressing profound thoughts. The mundane and the average can be just as affecting, revealing a shared humanity that resonates with us all. So we hope you will be encouraged by our presentation to go home, dig out those old letters, and read them with fresh eyes. And if you're ready to share them, please think of your local historical society or the Montana Historical Society. Um, I would like to, just to end this, um, I, I wanted to say that I have the privilege of working with an amazing staff. And uh, three of the folks who are sitting here recently took a, an extensive exam to become certified. I'm sorry, far. Sorry, uh, to be become certified archivist. So I would like for all of you to congratulate them on passing this amazing test. <laughs>